Hey guys, happy Monday. Welcome back to Kindled. I'm your host, Haley. So today I have a uh, very interesting and fascinating and uh, just incredible conversation to share with you with Mike Gendron. Mike is a former Catholic who uh, has a ministry called Proclaiming the Gospel, where he shares apologetics and evangelism resources, tools, and content. He is also the author of two books, Preparing for Eternity and Contending for the Gospel. The other uh, note that I want to let you know about before I get into this conversation is that I have a subscriber community over on Locals. Now, I'm going to explain what that is because I say it all the time, but a lot of people have no idea what I'm talking about. Locals is a website. It's a platform where you can build communities around content. So content creators like me can build subscriber platforms and communities and offer exclusive content to the people that want it. So that's what I'm doing over there. I used to have a Patreon page, but I got kicked off because they did not like my perspective on COVID. And uh, so I'm rebuilding on Locals. And you can view that page at kindledpodcast.locals.com. Now, most of the content is locked down for those who are subscribers. But I have four episodes on there that are unlocked, that are open, that you can go listen to. So you can actually become a member on Locals for free without signing up. Listen to those episodes. And if you like them, and if it seems like that would be worth it to you to get episodes like that every Friday, then you can join us. And it's 10 bucks a month. That money goes towards supporting this ministry and everything I do here. So it is um, it is really just a way for me to provide more content to those that want it. The reason I started it was because people were telling me they wanted more episodes from me. And um, you guys know that I do this as a ministry. And so in order for me to create more content, I needed to somehow kind of offset the costs and the time costs of doing so. So that is what I'm doing over there on Local. And again, you can sign up for free without becoming a paying subscriber and you can listen to those unlocked episodes. Visit the page at kindlepodcast.locals.com. Now, before I play this conversation with Mike for you, I want to give a couple of contextual information points to you before you start listening. Um, First of all, if you are listening as a Roman Catholic, thank you for pressing play. I, uh, I really appreciate the openness of heart and mind that it takes for for anyone to evaluate their own beliefs, the teachings of their church that they hold dear, their faith traditions. I don't take that lightly that you would press play on this podcast episode, and um, it is worth your time to to listen to. And I just want to invite you to truthfully and honestly evaluate the teachings of your faith against the Holy Scriptures, not against your own catechism or the teachings of your faith tradition, but against the ultimate authority of the scriptures contained in the 66 books of the Bible. The next thing I want to say is that neither Mike nor I are saying that anyone who considers themselves Catholic is not necessarily a Christian or is saved, has has salvation in Christ. Um, this is not a estimation of every Catholic I know or that we know or that anyone knows saying there's no way you could be a Christian. This is a evaluation of the teachings of the Catholic Church against the Bible. 
So again, it's not a condemnation of you in particular or of any one person. It's a comparison of the teachings of the Roman Catholic Church in their catechism and profession of faith to what the Bible says about salvation, sin, Jesus, Mary, heaven, hell, communion, and many more things. So you will see that in this episode. We really focus on the teachings and comparing that and contrasting that with what does the Bible say. So um, those are really the two things that I just want to point out. And um, again, encourage you to listen all the way through to hear, you know, uh, the full episode so that you really understand the heart behind where this is coming from. And um, and I'll also add that neither mine nor Mike's heart is to call out for the sake of calling out, but to share the true, pure, and simple gospel with anyone who is listening, that they would come to know Christ. That's the goal. The goal is that people know the Jesus that came to this earth and died on the cross for their sins, and that they understand how to who uh, receive salvation and to receive him as Lord. So that is the motivation behind this episode. Um, and I say all of that because I know that I have a large amount of Catholic followers on Instagram and, and probably listeners of this podcast who, um, you know, really appreciate and align with me politically and in a conservative political sense. And uh, and I know that to be true. And so I say this as a friend and a peer and someone who, um, you know, really has the the best heart of intention towards you if you consider yourself Catholic and um, desire for you to know the truth. And and if you do, then you will not be made uncomfortable by anything that we say in this um, episode. So, all right. I think that's everything I have. So, I will get right into my conversation now with Mike Gendron. All right. So, today I'm chatting with Mike Gendron. Mike, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure, Haley. So I would love, before we get started, for you to tell our listeners a little bit about who you are and what you do. Well, sure. I've been in ministry now for 31 years. It's called Proclaiming the Gospel, and it's a worldwide ministry. We've literally gone around the world several times to share the gospel in churches and seminaries and academies throughout the world. But it all started when I was a very devout Roman Catholic for 35 years, and I really believed I belonged to the one true church, and I really believed in the quote-unquote miracle of transubstantiation, and I was adoring and worshiping the Eucharist as the physical mm -hmm. presence of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it wasn't until at the age of 35 that I opened the Bible for the first time. Mm -hmm. And it sat on my coffee table collecting dust, and I never opened it because even though I had lived all over the world, every priest told me that it, the Bible was too difficult to understand. Don't even try to figure it out. Just come to us and we'll explain everything to you. And so I just sat there, but one, one day I was just curious, and so I opened it. And as I began reading, I really came to a point where I had a crisis of faith. Mm -hmm. And the crisis came down to, wow, the Bible's teaching something different than what I've been taught as a Catholic. So I had a torn loyalty. Should I trust Christ and his word or should I trust my religion? And it became very difficult to reconcile the two. My uncle was a priest for 30 
some years and he spent many of the years in Burma, which is now called Myanmar. And I remember he was home for furlough and I, I would call him and I'd say, I'm struggling with understanding why the Bible goes directly against all the things I've been taught as a Catholic regarding salvation, which I believe is the most critical issue we all face in this life. And he said, well, that's not true. We agree with the Bible. And I said, well, in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it says we are saved by grace through faith, and it's not of ourselves, it's the gift of God not of work so that no man may boast. And I was stunned at his answer. He said, Mike, God doesn't really mean what he's saying there. And I thought, wow, how does a priest know what God is really saying? And how does God really go against his word? Mm -hmm. And so I continued to read and dig and there is no way that I can reconcile the issues regarding salvation and how a man can become right with God and how a man can be forgiven of their sins. And so as I struggled, it came down to, should I trust the Lord Jesus Christ and his revealed word, or should I trust the teachings and traditions of my religion? And it was then that uh, God granted me repentance and gave me eyes to see mm. the clarity of the gospel message. And it literally turned my life upside down. I put all my trust in Christ as my all-sufficient Savior, mm. and I let go of everything I was doing to save myself, and it's really been an amazing spiritual journey ever since. Wow. What an amazing testimony. Um, I just was fascinated by the fact that you you opened your Bible, and that is where you found conflict. Uh, with with your religion, what you had been taught, what you were practicing, um, I've I, I've said to some friends, I don't know how I'm going to keep this interview to an hour because I want to ask you so many things, but I'm going to do my best. So, um, so do you find that in your ministry, have you seen that uh, not reading the Word of God, not read, not knowing what the Bible says, is common in many Catholics? Well, Catholics will tell you, and I'd be the first to admit that we do, as Catholics, get scripture during the Mass. Mm -hmm. And normally it's a, a couple of scripture verses out of the Old Testament, the Psalm, and a few out of the New, but they're never in context. And it's really hard to get an understanding of what God is saying through a few scriptures during the Mass. And, and then the priest will normally just uh, spend... 10 or 15 minutes on a homily and rarely does he even address what the Bible is speaking of. And so I would say for the most part, Roman Catholics are ignorant of what the scripture says regarding salvation, because if they understood it, then they would have the same crisis of faith that I did. Mm -hmm. And Haley, I, looking back, I didn't know it at the time, but my conversion was very similar to Martin Luther's. Mm. Nobody witnessed to him. It was just him opening the word of God and the spirit of God brought illumination and conviction. And mm. the same thing happened to me. It was the spirit of God showing me what the truth was from God's word. And those are the two things necessary for anyone to be converted. You need to have the spirit of God and the word of God. And it's very similar to the, the physical birth. You need the sperm and the egg. Mm -hmm. And so in the spiritual rebirth, you need the word of God and the spirit of God. Yeah, man, that's so true. You mentioned too, in your testimony that you were, you adored the Eucharist, which is uh, an interesting way for you to put that. Can you 
speak more to what you mean by that. Cause, um, the first thing I thought of was, you know, idolizing this practice and, and idolatry. Um, is that how you would characterize what your, what your perspective towards the Eucharist was? And, and could you also, for anyone listening who might not know, could you tell us what the Eucharist is? Well, sure. The Roman Catholic church teaches that the priest, every Roman Catholic priest has the power to call almighty God back down from heaven to continue on an altar what he finished on the cross. And they do this through the quote unquote miracle of transubstantiation. This, the priest will lean over a Eucharist and through the words that he says, the inner substance of the Eucharist becomes the physical body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ. And so Catholics believe not only are they worshiping the true Christ, but they also later on believe that they are consuming him, body and soul, his physical presence in the Eucharist. And so, yes, I adore the Eucharist because the Catholic Catholic Church teaches that you can get an indulgence by worshiping the Eucharist. And that's an indulgence is remitting temporal punishment for sin. It gives you time off in purgatory if you will do these different indulgences. And so, again, I was a very devout Catholic. I believed whatever the priest told me. And it wasn't until I was confronted with the truth from the Bible that I realized I was being deceived. And Haley, I want all of your listeners to recognize that the very nature of deception is that people do not know they're deceived until they're confronted with the truth. And so now that I'm a born again Christian, I want to lovingly confront Roman Catholics with the truth of God's word, not my opinion, but Mm -hmm. exactly what the word of God says. And only then will they recognize that they too are deceived, and then they have a choice to make, trusting Mm. Christ or trusting their religion. Yes, that's so good. Now that you say that, I I wanted to ask you before we got into all these questions, and what I'll do is I'll splice this into the beginning, but I wanted to ask you to say at the outset of this conversation, because I know that there will be people listening who are Catholic and who, um, you know, really treasure their Catholic faith, and some who will, be uncomfortable and maybe even possibly offended by some of the things that we share today and discuss. And I would love for you to share, uh, any word of encouragement to, to stay plugged in, to, to listen to the end of this conversation, even if they disagree anything, you know, what would be your encouragement to that person listening who is Catholic, who, uh, feels an affront and, and maybe even an offense uh, that we're even having this conversation, that it even exists, what would you say to that? Well, that's a good question. I would not want any Catholic to trust what I'm saying. I would want them to trust the infallible, inerrant, authoritative word of God. And that's what I'm going to be communicating because my words are void of power. The other thing that I would recommend is that this is the most critical issue every human being faces in their life. Mm -hmm. Where will I spend eternity? What must I do to be reconciled to God? Those are the questions that only the word of God can answer truthfully. Uh, There's many religions in the world that will lead people astray. And what Mm -hmm. they do is they lead them down the wide road to destruction. And I would hope that uh, every Roman Catholic that's listening to this would recognize that they need to do the same thing that the Apostle Paul did. 
if anybody trusted his religion, it was the Apostle Paul. If you look at Philippians 3, he had a resume that he cited. But then in the end, he said, I consider all of this dung for knowing mm -hmm. Jesus Christ as my Savior and his righteousness. I'm not, he said, I'm not trusting in my own righteousness anymore, but the righteousness of Christ. And so Paul exchanged his religion for a relationship with Christ. And that's what I encourage everyone to consider doing. I no longer have a religion. I have a, an eternal relationship with Christ. I've been reconciled to him forever. Mm -hmm. And the other thing I would suggest Catholics be most importantly attuned to is that the Bible offers the truth of the gospel, which is the promise of eternal everlasting life with the Savior. The Catholic Church only offers conditional life. Roman Catholics do not know where they're going to spend eternity. They can only hope that they will die in the state of grace and that they mm -hmm. will die with enough merit to qualify them for heaven. And the Bible speaks of eternal life, everlasting life. And 1 John 5.13, John is writing to those who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. And so God doesn't want anyone to doubt. He wants to give full assurance to everyone that's trusting in Christ. And, and Haley, the real key is that if you're trusting in what you're doing, you can never have assurance. But if you trust in the all-sufficient, finished work of Jesus Christ and his righteousness, then you can have that assurance of eternal life. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man, so good and helpful. Yeah, I just really pray and... um and hope that all those listening here, that this conversation is, is coming from a place of love, a place of, um, love for your soul more than, uh, love for human relationship or friendship or appeasing what might be easiest for you to hear. Um, and, and also to just offer a, a challenge to you that, uh, if, the Catholic faith is entirely based on scripture and is defensible with scripture, then this conversation will provide no pushback to you because we are going to, I mean, Mike is just so, um, so good at, at looking at the scriptural basis for doctrine and what, what doctrines we hold to and believe in and, and say, are, these are, these are what we should practice as, as followers of Christ. And so, if that, if your faith really is rooted in scripture, then you will not run into any problems. And so just stick around for the, for the conversation, if you would. Okay. Hey, so, man, and Haley, I just yeah. want to also say, because you said it for me, mm -hmm. it's my love for Roman Catholics that motivates me to do mm -hmm. this ministry. When the Lord saved me, one of the things that he impressed upon me very quickly, the only two things in this life that are eternal are the souls of men and the word of God. And I wanted to invest the rest of my life in those two things that would last through all eternity. Mm -hmm. And so that is why I plead with Roman Catholics to believe the word of God. Mm -hmm. If it goes against your religious tradition or your Pope, you've got to make a decision. Mm -hmm. There's no higher authority than almighty God. And he's revealed himself through his word, which is inspired and infallible. Yeah. That's so good. The first sponsor of today's show I want to share with you is Alongside Them. Speaking of knowing biblical truth, if you want an easy way to help your children learn the truth of God's word, check out the Basics Catechism and the Commandment Catechism available from Alongside Them. 
Their catechisms are written with simple and short answers that are easy for your little ones to repeat and remember. A scripture reference is included on each page to dig deeper into God's word together. Multiple ages can learn together from toddlers to parents. You can easily integrate this into your Bible time, family worship, right before bed. Visit their shop at etsy.com slash shop slash alongside them and follow them on Instagram at alongside them. The owners, Kira and Kenzie, are giving Kindle listeners $5 off your order of $16.50 or more when you use the coupon code KINDLED5. So don't forget to use that at checkout. You can also scroll down in the show notes of this episode for a quick link to their store. But you can find them at Etsy at etsy.com slash shop slash alongside them. So getting into some more questions, um, what what I, there are there are a lot of differences really between the Catholic faith tradition and uh, obviously what we now know to be Protestant Christianity. Um, and we're not going to get into like a, a very deep church history lesson because that would take up all of our time. And I have too many questions for you. But um, what would you say is maybe the the starkest contrast between the Catholic faith and biblical Christianity in your view? Yes. And I'm glad you framed it that way because I want Catholics to know that there are Protestant churches and Protestant denominations that no longer speak the truth. And so this is not an issue of Protestant versus Catholicism. This is an issue of what does the Catholic church teach versus what does the Bible teach? Mm. And so I would say the, the three major differences would be we have a different authority. Biblical Christianity submits to one authority, and that is Christ and his word. The Catholic Church has three authorities, and that would be the scriptures plus their sacred tradition plus the infallible teachings of their pope. And so they have to come to realize that there's no higher authority than Christ and his word and submit to his authority. The second thing that we have that's dramatically different, biblical Christianity teaches and believes the all-sufficient work of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he went to the cross, he died once for all sin for all time. And the Bible says there's no more offerings for sin. His work was perfect. It was complete and it was finished and it's all sufficient. Nothing else needs to be added to the finished work of Christ. The Catholic church, on the other hand, continues the work of redemption on its altars every day by the priest calling Jesus down from heaven and then through the transubstantiation of the Eucharist, the Mass is said to be a propitiatory sacrifice whereby the wrath of God is actually satisfied when the priest offers the Eucharist as a sin offering. And so that's why Catholics have to come back to the Mass every Sunday, because the Mass only takes care of the sins committed in the previous time, mm -hmm. whereas the sacrifice of Christ takes care of all sin, past and future sins. And so when we look at the sufficiency of Christ, he offers his righteousness as a gift to all those who will trust in him. And that's based on Romans 5.17. Haley, my favorite verse in the scripture is 2 Corinthians 5.21, where we read, he, that is Jesus, who knew no sin, became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And I consider that the greatest exchange that any human being could ever experience. Mm -hmm. By faith, Christ takes all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our punishment. And what does he give us in return? 
his perfect righteousness. And based on Hebrews 10, 14, this right standing we have before God based on the righteousness of Christ is forever. Hebrews 10, 14 says, by one offering, he has made perfect forever those who are being sanctified. So those are the three major differences, the authority, the sufficiency of Christ, and his finished work of redemption. I'm writing that down so I can refer to it. Wow, that is so um, succinct and clear the way you the way you laid that out. And um, you have a you have a masterful command of scripture, which is I know no doubt due to all of the time that you spend in God's word, and that's just such a uh, a challenge to me personally to know His word uh, and and to know where my beliefs come from because it it needs to be coming from the Bible. So, um, when we're talking about this difference between Catholics and Christians, like we are obviously, you know, you and I are, are making some, um, you know, uh, indirect assumptions that there are differences there. We, we obviously are, are discussing those differences here, but I would imagine there are some people listening who are like, well, I believe Catholics are Christians. I believe they are just one other denomination of Christianity, just like you have Baptists and Lutherans. So why don't you believe that Catholics are Christians? Because there is a distinct difference. The, if you look at Jude chapter, well, Jude verse three, it says we are to earnestly contend for the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. So this body of truth that defines what a Christian is was signed, sealed, and delivered in the first century. So anything that's added to this body of truth which includes the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, anything that's added to that, we must contend against. And if you look at Roman Catholic history, they've added many doctrines and dogmas that are not included in the first century church. Mm -hmm. And some of those apply to Mary. Some of those apply to indulgences and transubstantiation. And also the nature of uh, sin. The Bible teaches that all sin is mortal. The wages of sin is death, as we see in Romans 6.23, and mm-hmm. the soul that sins will surely die in Ezekiel 18.4. But the Catholic Church teaches there's another category of sin called venial sin, and they're lesser sins. They don't cause eternal separation from God and eternal death, only temporal punishment. Mm-hmm. And I hate to say this because I don't want Catholics to be offended, but that's the same lie that Satan spoke in the garden. Mm. Remember when he was deceiving Eve, he said, if you break God's command, you surely shall not die. Mm. Well, the Catholic church has perpetuated that lie into saying that venial sins will not cause you to die, only temporal punishment. And so the Catholic church um, has gone against the faith that was once and for all delivered. And in order to be a Christian, you have to repent and believe the gospel. And there's only one gospel, and it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ and his work of redemption. So the Catholic Church has added to the gospel. And again, Mm -hmm. just to be clear, this isn't Mike's opinion, but if you look at the catechism of the Catholic Church, if a Catholic wants to know how to be saved through his religion, the catechism teaches that you must be baptized, water baptized, and that is said to be the sacrament of regeneration and the sacrament of justification. Well, after a Catholic is baptized, later on, 
if he commits sins, then he has to go to the sacrament of confession. In order to receive the Eucharist, he has to be forgiven of his sins. And so then that's the next sacrament is the sacrament of receiving the Eucharist. You also have the sacrament of confirmation where the Catholic is said to receive the Holy Spirit. And so all of these sacraments are required for Catholic salvation. That has added to the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we know in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9, Paul said, if anyone, even if I, even if an angel from heaven comes preaching another gospel, let them be anathema. Mm -hmm. The word anathema means let them be turned over to God for destruction, for daring to add one requirement to the gospel. Now, keep in mind, Galatians chapter 1, Paul is dealing with the Judaizers who had they only added one requirement. They said, if you want to be a Christian, you not only have to believe in Jesus, but you have to be circumcised. So Paul drove a stake in the ground because the gospel must remain pure. Nothing can be added to it. The Catholic Church has added all these requirements. You have to be baptized. You have to receive the sacraments. Mm -hmm. You have to obey the law that places mm -hmm. them under a curse. That's a requirement mm -hmm. for salvation. And then the Catholic Church teaches you have to be justified by faith plus good works. Mm -hmm. In fact, they actually condemn you and I for believing that we're justified by faith alone. That's one of the anathemas from the Council of Trent. So the bottom line is the Catholic Church has a different gospel that's under divine condemnation because it's mm -hmm added requirements for salvation yeah so that that's why paul drove a stake in the ground and that's why the first command of our lord jesus christ is repent and believe the mm -hmm. gospel repent means you must change your mind you mm -hmm. can no longer believe the the false gospel that you once adhered to you now must repent and believe the true gospel yeah so responding to something that you just mentioned, because I know Catholics are thinking it right now, if they're still here, hang in there, stay here. Um, James two fourteen through 26, you know, the passage passage where we have the line faith without works is dead. I know. And I've heard this from Catholics that, okay, but see, see, we do need works. Cause if you don't have works, then your faith is dead. So we're not unbiblical in that. That's what some of them are probably thinking right now. So what would be your response to that? Well, the response is yes. If you don't have works, then your faith is dead. And the best way to look at this is to consider that faith is the root and works is the fruit. Mm -hmm. So if the root is dead, there will be no fruit. Mm -hmm. If the root is alive, then you will see fruit. Right. But whether or not the root is alive or dead has nothing to do with works. Mm-hmm. The, the root must be alive in order to produce fruit. And so I think Ephesians 2, 8 through 10 says it so beautifully. First, Paul says in verses 8 and 9, you're saved not because of things you have done. It's a gift of God, not of work, so that no man may boast. But then in the very next verse is, now that you are saved, then you do the works that yeah. God has prepared for you to walk in. So once you have this saving faith, then the works will come forth and they will be works that God has prepared for you to walk in. But if you do works before you're born again, the prophet Isaiah described them as filthy rags. And Haley, the key here is motivation. 
Mm. When I was a Catholic, I was doing works in order to be saved. Yeah. Now that I'm a Christian, I'm doing the works because I have been saved yes. out of love and gratitude and appreciation that Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for me. So the motivation is totally different. Right. So Catholics need to recognize you cannot add works to your faith in order to be saved. The works mm -hmm. come after saving faith. Yeah, it's it's a stark contrast, but one that many miss that we do good works from salvation, not for salvation. That's and, right. and I think that that is just, unfortunately, um, such a stumbling block for so many who, you know, um, have good intentions. They have the, they have the desire maybe even to live a good and moral and upright life or to, they do love God and they believe that they are kind of checking all the boxes in order to be saved. And they've been taught that these are the things that we need to see in your life. And so, um, you know, unfortunately it also leads as we know, just from, uh, you know, even culturally, there's this awareness that like, Oh, Catholics, you know, when you hear, when you hear people talk about Catholics, they're like, are you a good Catholic or are you just a cultural Catholic or are you a devout Catholic? Like we have all these different categories for, what kind of a Catholic you are, because there, it leads so easily to a performative, um, works-based religion that perhaps is something that you just do on Sundays or just on Christmas and Easter, or just whenever you're, it's required of you. And it's not necessarily, um, something that is woven throughout your whole life. Now, obviously to be fair, you can do the same thing as a Christian. You can, you can be performative in, in your, um, faith, towards Christ. But the difference is we would argue, I believe that from a, from a biblical standpoint that we're not teaching that we, we would actually teach against that and say what we just, what you just said, that your works are, should be coming from this faith that is, you've been made alive, you've been made a new creation. And so you're, you are going to be being conformed to the image of Christ through sanctification. And, um, and if you're not, then is, is really when we would go, well, are you really saved? You know, are you, or are, or have you believed on in something else that makes you right? And now you're just trying to do the works that look like you've been saved. Yeah. I think a good way to look at this is what the apostle Paul wrote in Romans eleven six. He said, if it is by grace, it is not of works. Otherwise grace is not grace. So you see, Satan knows that the only way God will save sinners is by his grace. And he also knows if anybody adds anything to God's grace, then it's nullified grace. And so mm -hmm. this, the person's not saved. And so it's no wonder that every religion in the world teaches, teaches a works righteousness salvation. Yeah. Because all the religions of the world are under the influence of Satan. He doesn't want anyone to be saved. So what has he done? He's developed all these religions where you have to do things to appease a holy and righteous God. But God has said, Christ is the all-sufficient Savior. That's why salvation is offered by grace. And Haley, the best way I can describe it from a human perspective is if you really want to be saved, you have to come to the cross of Christ with empty hands of faith, bringing nothing but your sins. You must leave everything behind. You must let go of everything you're doing. Put all of your trust and hope and confidence in Christ alone. Yeah, which is something that's very hard to do if you believe that all those things are what are making you right. You know, how do you, I mean, 
to have to leave those behind. It's, it reminds me of Jesus commissioning the first disciples and saying, come and follow me. And they literally dropped their nets. And it's like, that was everything to them. That was their livelihood. It was their identity. It was their career, their, how they fed their families and, and, and fed themselves. And they had to lay that down and set that aside in order to follow Christ. And it's, it's not different what we are talking about that. Yes, it is. It is a call to die to self, to the pursuit of everything that you thought made you right. And to respond to the gospel call, which is to repent and believe. And that act, that singular act of repentance and then belief is what saves you. And, and then from that place, God will enable you to walk in those good works. He's prepared for you. Um, getting into another topic, uh, you know, the role of the Pope, this is obviously a big one, but, um, I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, that this is, you know, uh, where Jesus said on this rock, I will build my church. That's where they get the idea that Peter was the first Pope. And so that instituted the, um, the role of the Pope in the church. Is that correct? Where they get that? Yes, Matthew 16, 18 is the most critical verse in Roman Catholic theology. It's mm -hmm. really the verse that the whole religion stands on. And what's happening here is that Jesus has just asked the question, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, this was not revealed to you by man, but by my father in heaven. Mm -hmm. And upon this rock, I will build my faith. I, I will build my church. And so what did Peter just do? He made a accurate profession of faith as to who Jesus is. And so anyone that is going to be added to the church of Jesus Christ must make that same profession of faith that Christ is indeed the Messiah, the, the Christ, the son of the living God. And so it's interesting because what happens later is Jesus said, before I build my church, I must first go to Jerusalem and die for my church. And what did Peter say? Lord, may it never be. Mm. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You have in mind the things of men rather than the things of God. So is this the kind of a man that Jesus would build his church upon? Mm -hmm. A few moments after he made that <laughs> profession of faith, he's now saying you have the mouthpiece of the devil. Mm -hmm. No, this is not, Jesus is not building his church on a fallible man. And by the way, we know Peter was fallible, not only because he said what he said here, but then later on in Galatians 2, Paul had to confront him to his face because he wasn't acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And you see Peter not submitting to Paul as another man, but submitting to the authority of Scripture. And so Peter was not the first pope. He was not the rock upon which Jesus built his church. In fact, in Peter's epistle, he said Jesus was the rock. And so mm -hmm. Peter wasn't confused about Jesus, what he was saying at this point in Matthew 16. So Jesus was speaking of himself? Well, he was speaking of the profession of faith of himself. Peter okay. made the profession of faith that Jesus is the rock. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. The next sponsor I want to tell you about is Little Light Artisans. Little Light Artisans makes handcrafted wood and resin earrings. Now, these earrings are actually some of my favorites. I'm not just saying that. I own several pairs and I love wearing them. 
Uh, Little Light Artisans is a small Christian family-owned business, and you are not going to find earrings like theirs anywhere else. So people notice them, they compliment me on them all the time. You can browse their designs on their Instagram at Little Light Artisans and find them at littlelightartisans.com. And they are giving Kindled listeners 20% off any order with the coupon code TAKE20. So don't forget to enter TAKE20 at checkout for 20% off any order. Check them out at littlelightartisans.com. Man, such a simple confusion uh, there, right? Or uh, And it, it... that one verse is the entire Catholic church is built on that one verse, that misinterpretation that it was Peter uh, as the first Pope. I mean, I don't know how many times I've heard that. And in so many different ways defended by Catholics. Um, And you look all the way through scripture, you see the rock is Christ. The rock is God. Peter himself in his epistles said, the rock is Christ. Paul said the rock is Christ. I mean, there's no doubt who the, who the rock is right Uh, throughout scripture. You see, and not once do you see that it's Peter. Right. Yeah. All throughout the Psalms, you know, the rock where I find refuge and hide myself. It's not, we're not talking about Peter there. So yeah, that's a good reminder too to, to interpret scripture by scripture and look at the whole of scripture when you're trying, when there is a point of confusion, it never is going to contradict itself. Um, so what about Mary? Uh, this is a big one and, uh, one that I, I don't know, seems to me to be sort of a favorite for a lot of Catholics and, um, the veneration of Mary, I've, I've heard it argued that, you know, well, veneration is different than worship. We don't worship Mary. When I've talked to Catholics about this, they say they do not worship Mary. I struggle to see the difference between veneration and worship personally. So I don't know. Could you speak to that? It's really a play on words. If you look up veneration in Webster's Dictionary, it says to worship. You know, it would be something if you had a switch where you could turn off, okay, I'm not worshiping now, I'm venerating. But how does how do you discern between what is worship and what is veneration? I mean, you see Catholics bowing down, even the popes bowing down to the statues of Mary. And, mm-hmm. and um, she is um, a diversion from the pure devotion to Christ. And and Paul warned us about that in Second Corinthians 11, that the Satan would turn your pure devotion away from Christ, just like mm-hmm. he did in the garden. And so we have to recognize that all a lot of the doctrines and dogmas about Mary are all unbiblical. They've been added to the scriptures. And um, I think 1858, they pronounced that Mary was immaculately conceived. And that's an infallible dogma that Catholics are forced to believe. Hmm. And so then the Catholics who recognize that, wait a minute, if Mary was conceived without sin and then never sinned, and sin is what causes death, then where's Mary's body? She must be alive somewhere. Hmm. And so in 1950, they had to come up with another infallible dogma that said Mary's body was assumed into heaven. And so one infallible dogma led to another infallible dogma. Both of them, of course, go against scripture. The Bible clearly says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We Mm -hmm. see in Luke's gospel that Mary needed a savior. Mm -hmm. And so she called Jesus her savior. And so all the way through scripture, we can see that uh, the Roman Catholic teachings on Mary go against the infallible authoritative word of God. Mm -hmm. I have to imagine uh, if Mary knew the diversion that she had Mm. become, she would be crushed, disgusted. I mean, just so uh, 
undone to know that she had diverted so many. I mean, obviously not due to her own teachings, but just to the teaching due to the teachings of others in, in this, in these unbiblical teachings that, uh, that really, like you said, I, there's, that's the perfect word. It's a diversion it's a distraction. Um, and, and really anything that causes us to, uh, that diverts our attention or our worship and our devotion away from Christ is, um, is liable to become an idol. And, and I think that it's clear that she has become that for so many, uh, and it's, it's literally built into the structure. It's built into the system. So, and specifically in how, uh, you know, some of the words, you know, as someone who didn't grow up or, or has not been involved in the Catholic faith, faith myself, I just, I recognize certain phrases. So something I'll hear, hear people say is, you know, mother Mary, uh, pray for us. And, and when I have addressed that and said, you know, why are you praying to Mary? And they've said, no, we're not praying to Mary. We're asking Mary to pray for us. And, and the argument I've, I've heard is, do you ask your friends to pray for you when you're sick? And I'm like, okay, yes, but those friends are alive (laughs) and, and Mary is not. So I don't like if Mary was my friend, sure. I would ask Mary, uh, you know, pray for me, but the difference is I'd be asking her to pray to God. I wouldn't be, you know, and, and it would be a friend, but now we're praying to someone who's dead. It's just, and, but I guess if, if they don't believe that she ever died, then that maybe that makes a way for them to believe that she's some sort of, um, you know, I I don't know, like some sort of living. Well, uh, she's another mediator. Right. In fact, the Bible says there's one mediator between man and God. That is the man, Christ Jesus. Mm -hmm. And he's the only one qualified to come between a sinful man and a holy God. And -hmm. what he does as our mediator is he reconciles us to God you know, every unbeliever is at enmity with God and he needs Mm -hmm. Christ to mediate reconciliation, but Mary's not qualified. She's not uh, a God woman. She's merely a woman. Christ Mm -hmm. is a God man. He's God's perfect man and man's perfect God. So that's why Catholics pray to Mary. And by the way, they are praying to Mary. The words hail Mary is addressing Mary. And so they have the rosary where they pray 53 times to Mary. And by the way, they're doing this to gain an indulgence. Uh, Mm. Catholics can receive indulgences by praying to Mary. But a lot of this has been reinforced by the apparitions of Mary. She's appearing in places like Fatima and um, Lourdes. And, you know, the Bible tells us to test every spirit. Are these apparitions really Mary? Well, how do we test the spirits? We see what they're saying, and we test it with the word of God. And Mary, these apparitions of Mary are saying, unless you're devoted to my sacred heart, you have no hope of salvation. So we know that's not really Mary. Mary would not go against God's word. Mm. And so a lot of this is tied up into Roman Catholic Mariolatry, if you will, really elevating Mary to be equal with Christ as the one mediator between God and man. Mm. You mentioned indulgences and um, I certainly learned about indulgences as a child in my homeschool curriculum. I remember learning that it would be, you know, um, back, you know, in the early years, uh, I don't know the century, I'm sure you do, uh, that it was like people would pay to get their loved ones out of purgatory or a lesser sentence being served in purgatory, essentially to get to heaven faster or 
basically sure. that sort of a thing. And then when I've talked to Catholics about that, they've said, no, we don't do indulgences anymore. That was done away with. Is that not true? true? No, not true? it's not. You can never change an infallible dogma. Now, the difference between a teaching doctrine and an infallible dogma is you can change a teaching doctrine. A good example of that is limbo. They don't teach limbo anymore because that was only a teaching doctrine. It was never, never ele elevated to um, a dogma. Hmm. Purgatory and indulgences are infallible dogmas. You see, if they were to change one dogma, the whole system would collapse. Yeah. So indulgences are still preach today. In fact, you can go into any Catholic mass on Sunday and you'll look at the bulletin, you'll see indulgence being offered to, and they'll list all the names. The sacrifice of the mass is one of the most primary indulgences. And when Catholics die, their family will purchase indulgences and they will write the name of their loved one on the mass card. Then they will give it back to the priest with $300 or more. And the priest will lay that on the altar and when he offers the sacrifice of the mass, that is supposed to reduce time for those suffering in purgatory if their name is on the card. And so it's still obviously a, mm. a practice today because it can never change. And Catholics who say that we don't do that anymore really need to consider what your weekly bulletin says. It's still being offered through the sacrifice of the mass. Yeah. So maybe they're confused and they think that because it maybe the teaching of limbo has been done away with that. It, it's, oh no, we don't teach that anymore, but it's like, no, you're still, it's still functionally being taught. Maybe it's not being claimed to do the same thing, but it's still an unbiblical teaching. So we don't see anywhere in scripture that tells us we can buy our way out of anything, punishment or separation from God or anything like that. In fact, Psalm 49, seven says, the cost of salvation is too high. No one could ever pay for it. You must cease from trying. And so it's clear that um, if money could buy salvation, then the blood of Christ would not be the most valuable commodity in the world today. Mm -hmm. But without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And Haley, this is something for your Catholic listeners to consider too. The sacrifice of the mass is said to be the same sacrifice as Calvary with one exception. It's a bloodless sacrifice. Mm. The mass is a bloodless sacrifice. That's the one element that's efficacious in forgiving sins. Mm. And yet they say it's the same sacrifice. No, Christ shed his blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. And so wow. the Catholic mass is not only unbiblical, but it doesn't even uh, line itself up with what the Bible teaches mm -hmm. about salvation. That brings me to this topic of finished work, which you mentioned earlier, um, you know, that obviously Jesus said on the cross, it is finished. Um, we know that the Bible calls Christ the once and for all sacrifice. And so why do Catholics, um, why is there this very unfinished idea? Like if you even think about the cross, Jesus is always hanging on the cross, you know, it's not an empty cross. He's still there. Um, what is it that is causing, why is that part so seemingly so integral, this unfinished aspect? If you look at all the religions of the world, their goal is to control the people. And that's what the sacrifice of the mass does. It keeps Catholics coming back in order to have their sins forgiven. 
it's a propitiatory sacrifice. The wrath of God is turned away. And the Bible clearly says when Jesus had finished the work of redemption, he entered into heaven. And yet the Catholic Church denies the words of our bloodstained Savior when he cried out in victory, it is finished. Those words speak volumes. It shows that blood was shed, which had to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. It showed that he completed the work of redemption, purchasing us out of the slave market of sin. We're no longer under the power of sin. We're now under the power of the Holy Spirit once you're born again. The work of redemption also reconciled us to God forever. And I love what 2 Corinthians 5.18 says, that Jesus Christ reconciled us to God. Now he has made us ambassadors for Christ, such that we are to plead for those that we're sharing the gospel with, that they too would be reconciled to God. Um, it's a beautiful statement in 2 Corinthians 5.18. It says that God is no longer counting our sins against us. And that, again, shows the finished work of Christ. Romans 4.8 backs that up. Blessed is the man whose sin God does not take into account. Why doesn't God take our sins into account anymore once we're born again? Because they were all placed on Christ. He was immersed in the wrath of God so that we could go free. We no longer have to fear God's just punishment because Christ bore all of our sins, past and future, and we are permanently reconciled to God. And Haley, I don't know if you've ever considered that. The Bible says that sin is what causes death. Mm -hmm. So why don't born-again Christians die again if they sin after they have been born again? It's because all of our sins were placed on Christ, and God does not count our sins against us anymore. So mm -hmm. this is the good news. Of course, mm -hmm. when I've shared this with Catholics, you know, their response is, so all you have to do is believe in Jesus, and then you get to continue to sin? Well, why would you want to do that? Mm -hmm. Titus 2, verse 11 to 13 says that the grace that brought us salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passions, and to live a self-controlled, upright life. No, when I realized that the sinless Son of God resigned his royal residence in heaven to come and rescue me, from the slave market of sin and from the just punishment I deserve, I want to live my life pleasing to him. I want to turn from my sinful past and live a life pleasing to my Lord. Yeah, that's so good. Again, the motivation is to bring glory to God and to enjoy relationship with him. It, it doesn't make sense if we really believe that he did this for us, that we would want to continue to live in sin. Plus, we recognize and know that he has made us a new creation. He's the one that transforms our desires and our will. It's not that it's coming from our flesh. Like in the natural man, we are not capable of pleasing God. Like we know that our works are our best works are still going to fall short, but he makes us new. And then he enables us to, to bring him glory. And it's like, it's the impetus is, is with God. He initiates it. He enables it. He sustains us. You know, all of it is it, to bring glory to himself. Um, so what is the, what is the, when you get pushback from Catholics that, that do not, you know, I would imagine not everyone that you share this message with, uh, accepts it. So what, what is the like point for them that they just can't get past what for, for, I'm sure it's different for everyone, but is there one that you hear more often than others that 
seems to be the sticking point where they, they, you know, are really resistant to the message of um, Christ crucified in the gospel? Yeah, good question. I'm so glad you asked it. First, we have to recognize from 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that the prince of this world, the devil, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel or the glory of Christ. And two of the most powerful weapons that the devil uses to blind unbelievers is religious pride and also religious indoctrination. And so that's the greatest stumbling block as we witness to Roman Catholics. They have this built-in pride. They've been taught from the time they can think that they belong to the one true church. And so they're trusting their religion to get them to heaven because they've been told it's the one true church. And religious indoctrination is when you start teaching a child from the time he can think that the Catholic church is their only hope of salvation. And I will grant the fact that Christ established only one church. What Catholics don't recognize is the word apostasy. It started in the first century. John writes in 1 John chapter 2, they went out from us because they were never part of us. Had they been part of us, they would have remained with us. And John was saying they went out from us because they were never born again. If they had been born again of the Spirit of God, they would have remained with us. And so we see in the first century apostasy taking place when false Christians left to a false Christianity. And so you look at the Catholic Church and its history. They did away with the plurality of elders. They elected a bishop that oversaw the other elders. And then they had different provinces with each having their own bishop and then when the Roman Empire imploded, then the Catholic Church filled the power vacuum and placed a infallible pope in Rome. History says that Pope Gregory was the first pope in 596. He was the first one that had universal jurisdiction over all the provinces. And so when you look at the history of the Catholic Church, they drifted away from the authority of Scripture. And in the fourth century, they started incorporating pagan traditions into their theology. And so that's what apostasy is. It's departing from the faith of the apostles. And Paul wrote about this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. He said, in latter times, some will depart from the faith to follow doctrines of demons. And then he goes on to define doctrines of demons. He said, forbidding people to marry. Mm -hmm. Well, what is the only religion that lifts up the name of Christ that forbids its people to marry? It's the Catholic religion. And so there you see black and white, the Catholic Church has drifted away and started following doctrines of demons. So yes, it can trace its history back to the first century, but what happened in the fourth century on, they departed from the word of God and followed their traditions. Yeah, man, so interesting. My final sponsor of today is Cornerstone Curriculum. If you guys have been listening to Kindled for any amount of time, you know that I love this company, not just because of what they stand for and what they do, but because I am a result of their curriculum and 
how faithful they have been with educating the next generation of students. I completed their four-year program, Worldviews of the Western World, in high school, and they have many other resources available for students of all ages. This is not only for homeschool families, although it is perfect if you do homeschool. Um, even if your kids are in a private or a public school, they have resources for you. They have a Answers for Difficult Days Bible Study, Starting Points Worldviews Primer, video series, so much more. Check out their website at cornerstonecurriculum.com and be sure to use the coupon code KINDLED for 5% off. That's KINDLED for 5% off and visit their website at cornerstonecurriculum.com. Um, you mentioned something that that reminded me of a question that I had regarding the Pope. I have also heard from some Catholic friends um, when I have brought up that, you know, uh, who's the current Pope? I don't even know. Pope Francis. Francis. Okay. He's a Jesuit. Okay. Interesting. Um, so they have said in regards to, especially, I think what's been helpful to reveal some inconsistencies is our political, uh, you know, context right now where the Pope has really come down on one side on certain political issues, be it abortion or vaccines or whatever. And Catholics like conservative Catholics have really disagreed with his stance and it has prompted me to ask, okay, but I thought the Pope was infallible. So how do you account for an infallible man making decisions that you obviously recognize and see go against God's word and even um, fly in the face of, you know, God's law? How do you account for that? And how do they, how do they make sense of that? I guess is my question. How do they like explain that away? Well, they do it this way. They say that the Pope is infallible only when he sits on the chair of Peter ex cathedra. And so then you really? would say, well, why don't you give me a list of all the infallible teachings the popes have made down through the centuries? And they'll say, well, we don't have a list. And so what they do in actual practice is they'll send up trial balloons to see if um, the rest of the bishops will concur with some of the teachings. A good example of one that's not worked yet is the elevation of Mary as co-redeemer. Um, Pope John Paul started that, but the bishop said if we elevate this to infallible dogma, then it will thwart the ecumenical movement where we're trying to gather all professing Christians under the power and influence of the papacy. And so because the bishops objected to that, they said, well, that's not an infallible teaching. And so now you have this pope who you have rightfully said goes against a lot of historic Roman Catholic teaching. And so the conservative Catholics don't know what to do with them. I mean, think of some of the things he said. Mm -hmm. Everyone is a child of God. Mm -hmm. Well, that not only goes against the Bible, but it goes against Catholic teaching. He says, everyone's going to go to heaven. That mm -hmm. goes against Roman Catholic history. He says that atheists will make make it to heaven as long as they're sincere. That goes against Catholic teaching. He's even said there is no hell. That goes against Catholic teaching. So they're not going to say he's infallible when he makes these statements. They're saying that that's his own opinion. Mm -hmm. And so the Catholic conservatives really don't know what to do with him. And I guess time will tell. We'll see whether or not he steps down or whether or not they remove him from office. But there is uh, definitely some division going on in the Catholic Church today. And oftentimes, Haley, I will say, if my pastor would say the things that your Pope is saying, I would go find another church. Yeah. 
I mean, this is the head of the Catholic Church making these statements that go against God's word and historic Roman Catholicism. Mm -hmm. By the way, yeah. this is a great opportunity to witness to Roman Catholics because in the past, they always looked to their Pope as a source for truth, but now they can't trust this guy. So mm -hmm. now we can present to them the authority of scripture and say, yeah. submit to this and you'll know the truth. Right. It does seem like a great avenue in for conversation um, because so many are struggling with that. I, I have Catholic friends who are like, uh, wow, what? Uh, he's he's uh, I've I mean, they've said um, he is a disgrace. Like, I mean, you're calling your own leader a disgrace. Like I again, yes, I, I would never stay at a church that I felt that my leader, my pastor, my shepherd was a disgrace like that is that just really grates against everything I believe. So, um, and, and I believe that a lot of them are feeling that tension and yet they don't have a way to make sense of it. They don't know what to do with that. Like you said, you mentioned that there's an ecumenical movement, which I guess I didn't realize this, that they want all professing Christians to submit to the papacy. So basically, are you saying professing Catholics want me, for instance, to be under the authority of the Pope? Yes. The ecumenical okay. movement started in 1965 at Vatican Council II. They issued a decree of ecumenism. And ever since then, they have been finding willing partners from the evangelical church to sign unity accords, stating that we share a common faith in the gospel. The mm. first unity accord was in 1994 with Chuck Colson, and Richard John Newhouse, and there's been subsequent accords. The Manhattan Declaration in 2009 was also signed by highly influential, highly visible evangelicals, such as Al Mohler, who's the president of Southern Seminary. He signed that? He signed it. And so now 640,000 evangelicals have signed the Manhattan Declaration that states we share a common faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ with Orthodox Catholics and evangelicals. And so this ecumenical movement is gathering steam. And we know in the end, there will be a global religion that will worship Antichrist. And I think the papacy is really pushing this agenda forward at a very rapid pace, especially Pope mm -hmm. Francis. Uh, he's really this is his number one goal is to bring unity with all professing Christians. And Haley, I need to tell you and all of your listeners that the calling card is the Eucharist. Catholics will tell evangelicals that we do not have the fullness of salvation until we come back home to Rome for the Eucharist. Mm -hmm. And so without that, we have no hope of the fullness of salvation. Of course, my response is that because of my faith in Christ, I have the complete forgiveness of sins. And according to your catechism, you don't. Because of my faith in Christ, I have the assurance of eternal life. And according to your catechism, you don't. So you need to leave your religion and exchange it for a relationship with Christ. Then you too can have the fullness of salvation. Mm. So that ecumenical movement that... Um you know, you, I, I'm surprised. I did not know that Al Mohler even signed that. Uh, what is your, what's your, what do you, why, why would he do that? Like, what's the reasoning behind that? I mean, 
I'm, I'm struggling to see what benefit there is for someone, for someone like him, who's, you know, a Protestant, um, you know, thought leader clearly in modern Christianity. I, I don't understand the, what would be his motivation? I see the motivation of the Catholic church, but what is his? I mean, I guess you don't know exactly. Well, but if you could speak I to actually that. have talked to him and I've talked to other mm -hmm. signers of the Manhattan Declaration pleading with them to remove their name because evangelicals are looking to them as their leaders. And if they read the document and signed it, then it must be OK. And so they're mm -hmm. signing it. As I mentioned, 640,000 evangelicals have now signed it. And Haley, what this does is it puts the Catholic Church off limits to evangelism, because if yeah. you're saying that they're already our brothers in Christ, if we share a common faith, then why do we need to evangelize them? So I hope you can see that it's really against the Great Commission. But back to the question, why do they sign it? Because they want us to be co-belligerents with Catholics and Orthodox to fight the social and moral wars that we're fighting, mm. such as the sanctity of life, such as the sanctity of marriage. You know, we want to be pro-life. We want to be against abortion. Well, does God really need us to unite with unbelievers to accomplish his purposes? You look to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 14 to 18, and Paul forbids any unity with unbelievers. What does light have in common with darkness? What does Christ have in common with Belial? And so we need to remain separate, and God will accomplish great things mm -hmm. through the people that are faithful and not uniting with unbelievers. Yeah, that's, yeah, I agree with you entirely. Um, is the recent uh, Muslim, Jewish, Catholic, interfaith counselor, whatever that, I've read some articles about that. Is that uh, the same movement that you're talking about? Yes, it is. Ultimately, okay. they're pushing for a global religion. Mm -hmm. You know, what's amazing is that all the religions in the world outside of biblical Christianity all have a common bond, and that is a works righteousness salvation. Yeah. Every religion teaches that you have to do things to appease your God. Yeah. And so that's a common bond. Now, when you look at Islam and Catholicism, mm -hmm. they've got a lot more common bonds. And one of them that we've already talked about is Mary. Mary is the most esteemed woman among Muslims. She's mentioned more times in the Quran than she is in the Bible. And Muslims are now flocking to apparition sites in Fatima, Portugal, which, by the way, is a city named after Muhammad's first daughter. They're going there to get a message from Mary. And the message that they're hearing is that Mary is coming for all of her children. Mm. Be devoted to my sacred heart, and then you can have salvation. So we know that in the end, lying signs and wonders Satan will use to unite the world. And so I believe these apparitions are some of the lying signs and wonders he's using. Mm -hmm. And so it's really heartbreaking to see so many people, if they would only believe the Bible and see the warnings against false teachers. And when Jesus talked about the signs that would be right before his coming, he repeated a lot of signs, but one sign he repeated three times, deception. There will be false teachers, false Christ, and false prophets to deceive even the elect if possible. Mm -hmm. So more than ever, we need to be aware of the deception. It's coming inside the church. Satan knows he can attack the church more successfully inside the church mm -hmm. than from outside the church. And so that's why he's planting tares in our churches. The Lord warned us that, that yeah. Satan would plant tares, and then they grow up and they become leaders and they lead the church astray. 
Yeah. And, and of course it's always, it's never, this is what's so hard is that deception never uh, labels itself as such. It labels itself and it calls itself um, the only, the just most positive and uh, affirmative and, and, you know, harmonious language that you could imagine that it, they urge interfaith harmony and urge unity. I mean, these words that, you know, sound godly, sound Christian, sound positive. And, and really though, they reek of, um, apostasy and, and for anyone who understands the call of, of the true believer, like you said, to remain holy and separate and consecrated to Christ. Um, it's, it's just so hard, I think, for a lot of people to recognize these calls as what they are, as, as deception. Uh, they, they sound so good. And, and really, who doesn't want, I mean, in our flesh, who doesn't want to just have unity with everyone, right? Wouldn't it just be easier if we could just find a little common ground? And couldn't we just put aside some of our differences and find what we agree on instead of focusing on what we disagree on. Right. I mean, these are things that we hear all the time. And, and there's a part of me that wants to go, yeah, that would be really nice. It would be really nice to stop warring all the time. But the problem is that's not like, we're not permitted to do that in scripture because we are not permitted to give up the truth in, for the sake of unity. And, and in fact, of course, Jesus himself said, if the world hates you know that it hated me first, you know? And so who are we to think that we should not be hated by a world that hated our savior? It just, uh, I mean, it's, it's pretty uh, clear that that is actually, that is what we are to expect. Amen. And Catholics will point to the Lord's high priestly prayer in John 17 as a mandate for unity. But what they fail to recognize is that Jesus was praying for unity in the truth. Yeah. That is what unites us. And by the way, I've thought about this, and I can't come up with anything else that both divides and unites other than truth. Mm. Truth is what unites every born-again Christian together, but it's also what divides us. Jesus said he's the personification of truth, and he said, I came to divide father against son, mother against daughter. So it's truth that divides unbelievers from believers, but it's also truth that unites believers together. Mm, yeah, that's so good. Well, um, any final thoughts on how we, as uh, speaking to the Christians who are listening, we've spoken a lot to the Catholics and 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 just pack, unpack scriptures that really uh, defy a lot of the teachings of the Catholic Church. But speaking now to the Christians who um, feel a burden to share the truth of the gospel, the hope of the gospel with friends or family who is Catholic. Um, what is your encouragement to them? What's your advice to them? How can they do this with both grace and truth? Well, that's a, a question that would probably take another hour to answer. <laughs> but one of the things that I could encourage them to do is to visit our website because we have so many resources that I've developed over the last 30 years to equip and encourage evangelicals to reach out to this huge mission field that contains 1.3 billion precious souls. I've written a book called Preparing for Eternity, and it's a book that has set so many Roman Catholics free because it basically does what the Lord used to bring me to himself, and it compares what the Word of God says right alongside what the Catechism of the Catholic Church teaches, and it forces Catholics 
to make the same decision I had to make. Should I trust Christ in his word or the teachings and traditions of my religion? Haley, we also have seven gospel tracks that I've designed to reach out to those Hmm. who are perishing. And three of the tracks are dedicated to reaching Catholics and four dedicated to reaching anyone that's lost. We've got DVDs. That's the way we began our ministry 31 years ago was inviting Hmm. people over to watch gospel videos and and your listeners can do the same thing, but proclaimingthegospel.org is our website, and we're just here to help anyone. We want to equip them and encourage them, recognizing that the Roman Catholic religion is a mission field. It's not a Christian denomination, and they all need to repent and believe the gospel, and I want to make this clear. I'm not suggesting that everybody in the Roman Catholic religion is lost. They may have heard the gospel from outside the church, from Christian radio or from a a friend. But once they are born again, the spirit of God will eventually move them out as they are discipled in the truth. And so that's what we're called to do. Make disciples by teaching them to observe everything Christ has commanded. And I would like to say this too. The Bible is what God says. Religion is what man says God says. And I say that because Catholics can go directly to what God says. They don't have to go through their religion. They can get the pure truth by opening the Bible and seeing what the gospel is and what it's not. So I would encourage everyone listening to recognize that this is the most important decision we have to make. The reason the Lord Jesus left his church here is to witness to the lost Remember, his goal was to seek and to save that which was lost. When he ascended into heaven, he passed the baton to his church. And that's the reason we're still here, Mm -hmm. so that we can reach out to the lost and share this glorious gospel of grace. Yeah, man, so encouraging. Last thing I'll ask you is uh, to share um, in your own words, uh, I don't, I guess, what other words would you use? to share uh, an invitation to anyone listening who um, is not sure if they are saved or um, wants to be saved is intrigued by the things that you've shared today, uh, whatever they call themselves, Catholic, Muslim, Jewish, whatever it may be, just to share with them um, the invitation of Christ. Well, sure. It's the glorious gospel of grace. And it starts with our God and creator. He is holy and righteous and just. And the Bible says that he must punish every sin that has ever been committed by every man and woman that's ever lived because he's a holy and righteous judge. And then we read that every man has sinned, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we also read that the wages of sin is death. That's the punishment that we deserve when we have sinned against a holy and righteous God. But God is also a God of love, mercy, and grace. And so he didn't leave us in this hopeless and helpless condition. He sent us a savior, his only son, the eternal son of God, who took on human flesh so that he could be our kinsman redeemer. He lived a sinless life. He went to Calvary's cross to be a substitute for all those who would trust in him. He took upon the wrath of God that sinners deserved so that sinners could go free. And then he cried out in victory, it is finished. Three days later, God raised him from the dead, showing that he was satisfied with the death of Christ as the full payment 
for all those who have trusted in him. And then we see the only saving response to this good news is to repent and believe it. Repent, which means if you've been believing something else, you must change your mind. That's what the word repent means. It's the Greek word metanoia. Change your mind from the old way you thought was true and believe the true gospel of Jesus Christ. And then the promise is eternal, everlasting life. At the moment you repent and believe the gospel, you are a new creature in Christ. You've been born again. You're now on your road to heaven, and you now have the perfect righteousness of our Lord Jesus Christ. The sin punishment that you deserve has been paid in full by your Savior. So I plead with anyone who has not come to Christ with empty hands of faith, leaving everything they're doing behind, that today would be the day of salvation. God doesn't promise you tomorrow. Today is the day you need to put your trust in him. Yeah. Amen. Thank you so much. I am so thankful. I got a chance to speak with you. You have just so much wisdom and a testimony that I know God is using uh, to bring so many unto himself. So thank you for your faithfulness in proclaiming the gospel. And again, people can visit your website, proclaimingthegospel.org. So many great resources there uh, for equipping you. There's all kinds of audio messages and interviews. Um, like you mentioned, the tracks, videos, various broadcasts, things people can grab online. So uh, look forward to digging in more there. And uh, is there anywhere else online people should follow you? Are you on social at all? Sure. We have a Facebook account and okay. we also have an Instagram account. I also have a YouTube channel. And you can also call us. We man the phones 24-7. So if you have a question based on today's interview or a question about witnessing, our phone number is 817-379-5300. And you won't always get someone answering the phone. Mm -hmm. And you're not going to get a recording. So please call us if we can be of help. Thank you, Haley, for the privilege of sharing the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ with all of your listeners. And I look forward to maybe doing this again with you in the future. I would love that. Yeah, maybe we can find another, uh, we can find one of those rabbit trails that I took you down and we can really dig deep in that. Thanks again, Mike. Blessings to you. Well, that is what I have for you today. I really pray that this conversation was informative and encouraging and one that you leave feeling better equipped to uh, go back to your friendships, your relationships, perhaps even to have some conversations with a spouse or a friend over the content that you heard here today. Make sure and subscribe to Kindled so you don't miss any episodes from me. And if you have not left a rating or review, you can do that in the podcast app by scrolling down, clicking the star rating and leaving a few words. Um, really appreciate that as it helps the show get found by more people. All right, guys, have a great week. If you are in Firestarters, I will see you inside there on Friday. If not, I'll see you next Monday. Bye.